Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 130, and happy National Poetry Day if you're listening in New Zealand. Uh, I have Poetry Day every year, and uh, yes, I did plan this. The guest today is Bill Manhire, so he talks a little bit about Poetry Day, but it's a much bigger conversation than that. And I tried to get Bill last year for Poetry Day. We, that's when we first talked about it. And the, the failing is all is all me. Uh, I, for some reason, I couldn't do it last year. At that time, uh, something happened. I can't remember what now. And uh, it sort of just fell away. So I left it for a long time. And then just recently, I got in touch with them and said, hey, we never did that podcast. It's my fault. Um, do you want to come and have a chat? And should we do it for Poetry Day this year? And luckily, he said yes. Now, Bill is a name that's come up on this, Bill Manhire's name has come up on this podcast a bit because I have talked to a few creative writers that have been through the IIML at the uh, University of uh, Victoria, Wellington University, as it's probably going to end up being called. Uh, and Bill was was there when that started. He's retired now, retired from that position, um, but he was there he was the, the figurehead, he was the teacher, and he was uh, criticised for creating McManhires and the Manhire school of, of, of particularly female writers. There were lots of different criticisms, so we get into that, we talk a bit about that, but we talk a lot about who he is, where he came from, his work, the things that he's done, the places he's been, the people he's seen. He talks about attending poetry readings by the likes of Pablo Neruda. Uh, he reads from some of his work throughout and we talk about how now he's he's really a songwriter in a way. He's got this long-running collaboration with, with Norman Meehan, who, who's been a previous guest of the podcast, so I will include a link in the, in the notes to that if you want to check that out, because that conversation in particular features a lot of talk about Bill and his his writing and what he brings to that to that collaboration. So it was great. I had met Bill before a few times over the years. So I, I we we do discuss this early on on the podcast. I think I I interviewed him in about the year 2000 or 2001 for a magazine that never quite happened, or if it happened, he never got a copy of it. Uh, so I feel like hopefully the the job's done now. The interview I've done this interview with Bill and it does exist. It's you're going to hear it and he's going to hear it if he wants to. Um, but uh, you know it was amazing to talk to him. I was quite nervous uh, in preparation because even though I know him and he's always been very nice, uh, it's just such a a, a a huge impact that he's had on 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 so many writers and uh, and and the work is is. Uh, well, it's the work of a genius. It's 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 very hard to explain his work. Uh, there's just such a special mood about his work, and sometimes you don't quite understand it. And that's part of the magic. It's the words sound. There's a musicality to to what he does. Always, you'll hear that musicality in his voice as he speaks in this podcast. So, uh, let's check it out. This is me talking with uh, Bill Manhire. I do recall going up to the university to your office and, and doing an interview with you at some point, sitting in your office and looking at an amazing view. But I, I can't remember when that was. I feel like it was about 2000, 2001. So must, have been, must have been 2001 because that's when we were in that office. Right, okay, well there you go, yeah. So it might it could have even been a year after that or so, but yeah, it was around then. And you were talking about starting a magazine, as I recall. Uh, someone was starting a magazine, yeah, right. and I was I was involved in that. That's right, yeah. That's where you have got a better memory for these things than you than you need to have. <laughs> oh, I'm, still, I'm still waiting for the magazine. So. Oh, it happened. It, it, did, it, it oh. did happen. I don't no, know. No. Yeah, no, no, that that that, that, that didn't happen. Oh, that's that's. It, it speaks to how short-lived the magazine was that no one from it thought to actually 
get you a copy of the magazine that featured the interview because it did happen. I oh, did right. did write something up and it did go in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I was aware of your work. I mean, I I was aware of your work in the nineties, and I feel like you had a really productive, prolific nineties. But then maybe that's just because I was catching up on who you were in your stuff. I know you were active for two decades before that, and I know about that stuff now. But I don't. It just my my impression was always that the '90s was where you kind of seemed to really make and capitalise on a name in terms of putting stuff out there and being really well recognised. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because I I don't think of my life in terms of decades at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think in the '90s, probably some of the stuff that was in a book called Milky Way Bar came out, Mm -hmm. and, and that represented some sort of forward movement for me, I think, mm-hmm. or, or a kind of shift in direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's some poems I was pretty pleased with yeah. were being written then. And probably I was free of very small children round about there. Right, okay. You know, so those yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. domestic things which totally enhance your life but close certain <laughs> aspects of yeah, it down. Yeah, 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 uh, Ch- change your timings. That it all shifted, yeah. Because <laughs> I was reading some of your stuff from the, uh, I guess from the early 80s re- recently, knowing I was going to talk to you, and some of it I'd read, some of it I hadn't. And, yeah, you know, the children pop up yeah, yeah. in those poems because they're little children, you know, they're, yeah. they're, you're so, they're so in front of you. Yeah, you're so astonished that they yeah. exist at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. <coughs> and that you've you've somehow... <laughs> played a role in keeping them alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so but I'm going to, people are going to hear this on or right around or just before Poetry Day. Poetry Day's been a thing that's been happening for how long? 20, not quite 20 years. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. round about that. And you, I guess, are always involved in it one way or another um, as a participant and then mm. turning up to see other things. So what, what what's your involvement this year? Uh, my involvement this year is that I'm co-chairing with Anne Mallinson, who was quite a significant publisher for some years uh, in Wellington, uh, co-chairing with her a, a session based around a, a book called Big Weather, which is a, an mm-hmm. anthology of Wellington weather and poems. wider yeah, Wellington yeah, yeah. poems. Yeah, lots of weather yeah. in Big Weather. Uh, that's from a poem by... There are quite a few visiting poets in, in there, so the title comes from a... A poem by August Kleinzahl, the American yeah, poet. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, it's 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 a really good book, and I think we've got about six of the contributors to the book reading their poems. Each of them is going to read a poem and choose one poem by another mm. contributor. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty amazing anthology when it first came out, published by Anne Mallinson mm. through her company Mallinson Rendell. Uh, people pr- probably know. Harry McCleary and Mallinson, mm, mm. you know, first published the Harry McCleary thing. So, Big Wellington was a, a sort of entertainment on the side from yeah, the serious yeah. publishing. But boy, it went well. It's sold and sold yeah, and sold. Yeah, yeah, you always say it. It's yeah. got a big tourist sale. Yeah. Unity, I think, have sold many thousands of copies yeah. over the years. Yeah. And when it came out, it was immediately copied in every other city in the country. Without much success, as far as I can gather. Just quirky enough to stand out, but wholly representative as as an anthology, a compilation of voices. Yeah, I guess, and yeah. just just that right kind of gimmick. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, yeah. And not 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 yeah. a not an overt gimmick, but just yeah. as I say, a bit of quirk. Yeah, and a brilliant cover by an Anne Noble photograph, sort of mm. looking across the city. Yeah, as you're talking about it, I can day. see it, yeah. and I can, I you know, I can picture it in my, and it's been years since I've 
picked it up and thumbed through it, but I can totally picture yeah, you the can cover. Feel the storm coming <laughs> yeah. up the harbour, you know, mm. uh, on the cover at least. Mm. You know. mm. Well, I want to I want to have a pretty wide ranging conversation with you, which I always I always try to do with people, but um, it it strikes me that there's so much about your life and work that happened before I was alive and, and then particularly before I was aware of it. So you've written about some of that stuff. There was a great essay that you did, I think it's under the influence oh, yeah. for the it's in the you put it out recently in the collected Oh with the, sto- the stories fiction, fiction and fiction book. book. Yeah, yeah. But it existed for <coughs> the little was it Lloyd Jones's press, those little essays? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was an essay for Lloyd Jones's mm. so that, press. Yeah. So that talked a little bit about your early life and your upbringing and mm. uh, I wonder if we can go, sort of go back there and see see how far forward we come from there so okay. if you want to talk about uh, where you grew up and I guess within that um, when words of any kind come into your yeah. life you know reading yeah. writing well I was uh, I was born in Invercargill 27 December 1946 uh, and my father was a publican. I think he was probably the first uh, mine host, as it were, at any of the Invercargill pubs that were set up by mm. the new Invercargill Licensing Trust just after the war. And my mother, his wife, was a Scottish war bride. He'd been in the Navy and they'd met in Edinburgh. Mm. And uh, so I was born in Invercargill, immediately entered the hotel world. Uh, and my father worked in you know, ran that hotel, the Southland, I think, for maybe about a year. And then he moved to manage a pub outside the trust boundary, so not far from Invercargill, in a little place called Wallacetown. And uh, it's a pub which has always been called the Green Roofs, but it's on the road through to Riverton. Mm. And uh, that that was sort of outside the trust boundary, and so... It did a spectacular after-hours trade, you know, which was very big <laughs> mm. because the licensing trust was mm. going to keep within the letter of the law, which mm. was not not anything to do with the social norm in terms of drinking. Mm. And so, I remember growing up in Wallacetown and in other pubs around Southland and Otago in this world of heavy drinking. Not that I was drinking. Uh, race going, lots of race horses. Everyone either bet on the horses or owned a racehorse mm. or, or aspired to own a racehorse. Mm. Uh, and that, that whole kind of... It was a very strange world, I think. You know, you, you don't realise at the time, but uh, all of those men who were around the place were mostly just back from the war. They were deeply disturbed, mm. I guess. Mm. You know, quite, quite troubled in various ways. Uh, mm. Didn't want to talk about stuff, but wanted to get together with their mates and bond like, you know, nobody's mm. business. Mm. Their wives were a bit displaced as well because they'd been doing quite well without them probably during the war. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My yeah. mother in particular was hugely displaced, having been put on a boat full of other war brides and sailing out to New Zealand and arriving here, I think she told me, on uh, St Valentine's Day 1946, so February whatever it was, mm. uh, and finding that... She was 12,000 miles away from family and so on and married to a publican rather than a handsome sailor. And uh, she also said to me, and I think I probably put some of this stuff in the essay, but she remembers my father met her on the Wellington docks 
and then they got the ferry across and then they drove down the South Island to Invercargill and she remembers, they must have gone down the west coast, but she remembers halfway down the west coast mm. at some point thinking uh, that they could just drive and drive forever now and never get to Scotland. Uh, so she was a bit of a fish out of water mm. doing her best and so on. Did you see Tom Scott's play? The new one that was not the new Joan. one. I've seen the one about his dad, but not yeah, about his mother. Yeah, so I'm yeah. just the one about his mother echoes a lot of what you're just talking about. Your mother, yeah, yeah. she was Irish, not Scottish, yeah. but but just yeah. that that ex- absolute extreme version of the tyranny of distance. Yeah, like, yeah. you know that, yeah. that that plagued New Zealand for a long time, yeah, yeah. and possibly still does in some ways, but nowhere mm. near as much. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so that means I was sort of born into this world, which. Uh, in some ways, was a happy world. I remember lots of happy singing. People must have been mm. feeling relieved for many years mm. after the end of the war. Mm. Uh, but uh, it was a very strange world to be born into, I think, because you had the you were a beneficiary of, of the war, mm. but uh, you didn't really know about it. Didn't as you understand were it up. at all, yeah. And then when you become a bit more alert to your surroundings, you discover this thing called Anzac Day is going on, and. Uh, that's pretty weird, you know. Mm. I hated Anzac Day, still hate Anzac Day, you know. Uh, whereas, you know, my grandchildren don't, yeah, uh, and so on. But so no, no one's commissioned you to do a poem for Anzac Day. I got commissioned uh, I by like the Imperial War Museum happened. to do a poem about the First World War, mm. which, which I'm pretty pleased with actually. It's in that book called Some uh, Things to Place in a Coffin. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, but no, not a poem about Anzac Day itself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't care for that. Uh, and actually, you know, I mean, the, the aftermath of the war was pretty significant, I think. Mm. So when I started high school, uh, certainly when I got to Otago Boys High School in my fourth form year, the first thing that happened in the first week at high school was you had to put on sandpaper khaki uniforms and march around and do cadets. You had right. to slope arms yeah. and water arms and, you mm. know, left turn and right turn and mm. endless measure off all that all this kind of bizarre disciplinary sort mm. of ex-army stuff run by puzzled teachers who probably Gosh, haven't been to the war tell high school kids that today and they probably you know feel like that's a throwback to the 1500s yeah. not, not the early 15 <coughs> yeah and then I, I remember at otago boys high there would be school gala days and we'd all be wearing white shirts uh, white shorts at least and uh, white singlets and doing mass sort of gymnastics on a, mm. on a large green sward for parents to watch and mm. think, who won this fucking war, you know? Mm. <laughs> I mean, it was mm. sort of Nazi youth sort of stuff mm. in some respects. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, I think that was the world I was sort of born into and grew up in and mm. was, was oblivious of to a large extent in terms well, of why it was like that. Yeah, well, when do you start making any, any sense of that and... Within that, or completely outside of that, any sort of sense of real sense of yourself and what you're, what you are actually born into, and what you're going to go and do. Yeah, hard to say. I mean, I suppose like most people, you start in your early teens to mm. think a little bit for yourself to develop know. an identity. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're being influenced not so much by parents and immediate circumstances as by whatever the social trends are the cool elsewhere. Yeah. So you know. Music. So you go to the movies and, mm. you know, you, you, you pay attention to that or mm. you listen to some kinds of radio. I mean, mm. I hate to think 
how I would have managed if suddenly the internet had arrived when I was a 14-year-old, for example. Mm. That would have just blasted me apart, I think. Mm. So, yeah. So what was it? Was it pop music of any kind or was it, or was it books? Well, you mentioned movies. Yeah. What was the first thing out of you know those sorts of markers of a culture and a and a style that that made any sort of I impact that, for you? I, th I think it probably was pop music. I think you know the first record I ever bought was uh, Connie Francis singing "Lipstick on Your Collar." Mm. I mean, I barely knew what lipstick was <laughs> until I had any on my collar. But, <laughs> you know, but I remember buying this record, and I can sort of see. You know the 45, and mm. so I can still sort of see the yellow label and mm. so on. Uh, and when I was living in Dunedin, age 13, we lived in the Crown Hotel, which has sort of become a band pub now, really, on the corner of Retro Street and McLagan Street. And straight over the road from the Crown Hotel was a little radio station called 4XD, which. Uh, was a religious radio station and was somehow hooked into the American Christian networks. But because of that, it got all of these uh, records, months and months yeah. and months ahead of them ever arriving in New Zealand, and some of them never did arrive. So if you listen to 4XD at the particular times during the week, mm. you could hear what was happening. Uh, and that was really wow. very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Very, very different from, I don't know, the Loxine hit parade or whatever it was mm, that, mm, that, mm. that was otherwise available on the, mm. you know, radio, national radio's yeah, commercial yeah, network. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was that. That was interesting. And that was sort of at odds with the world I was in. Uh, but also, I suppose, in terms of music, the Crown Hotel itself was very interesting because it was a big... We're, we're talking sort of 19, early 60s, I guess, now. And... Uh, there were a lot of touring shows came through and the Crown Hotel had some deal, and I'm sure lots of pubs did, but it had some deal with the promoters of the different shows that they would put posters up in the public bar and the private bar. And the quid pro quo for, for that was to get a couple of tickets to the show. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Beatles on that basis, I went to Roy Orbison on that basis, I went to the Everly Brothers, uh, all in the Dunedin Town Hall, wow. and at the same time, because everything was available, I went to Ravi Shankar, I went to Jimmy Shand and his band, mm. little man with a moustache mm. and a kilt, mm. with a piano accordion tapping his foot, <laughs> uh, and lots of weird stuff which I think is all forgotten now, like mm. Mr Gene McDaniels, and probably even you haven't heard of him. Yeah, uh, no, you know, no. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was, that was Del mm. Shannon, mm. Runaway. Uh, so I was sort of deeply immersed in all of that. Well, you mentioned some some legendary names there, and um, you know, did you? Obviously, part of it is is going along because it's it's there and it's it's something to do. But how you know were you in, in a lot of those cases, those big names you mentioned, were you already aware of who they were, and I guess a fan on a level and. Yeah, 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 I would have I mean, been. The Beatles, obviously, the, yeah, Roy Orbison, I imagine. Yeah, 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 those sorts yeah, of things. So yeah. you knew you knew what you were seeing. It wasn't, yeah. you knew that this was special that they were yeah. in town. Yeah. But I think probably, since we're on my very sort of limited sort of musical taste thing, <laughs> when I got to university, which I was sort of puzzled by, I didn't quite know what a university was. Yeah. 
but uh, I, I drifted on to university because that was kind of what you were able to do and yeah. all my mates were doing. Uh, and I did arts because I couldn't think of anything else to do. Yeah. Uh, didn't want to be a lawyer or <laughs> that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and the music that was just sort of on the circuit then was uh, folk music, basically. Mm, mm. So, you know, the Pete Seegers of the world and mm. the Peter, Paul and Marys who were sort of sub-folk music. Mm. I mean, they'd come through the town hall on that free ticket system. A kind of, uh, a kind of twee folk. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I think I sort of got moderately seriously into folk music for a while. Yeah. Even bought myself a 12-string guitar, which got yeah. stolen about it? a week after I bought it. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And did, uh, did, did, did you find a replacement any time? Like, is that something that you got? any sort of facility for or was it like oh, oh, I don't think so I mean I, I, yeah. I used to be able to sort of play six chords and, yeah you know sing a few well, songs in the four bar after that's four more than you need <laughs> yeah yeah so that that, that had its moments but, yeah. uh, but then life intervenes and you know mm. yeah so where do words and writing come into into all of this and, and how much of an impact was I guess the words of popular music, were you listening to any of this stuff for the lyrics or consciously, you know, processing the lyrics or was it just music as a whole? Oh, I was pretty aware that Lennon McCartney were doing much more interesting things Mm. with lyrics Mm. than, you know, any of the Roy Orbison numbers or or the Everly Brothers, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I could tell that, you know, the words of Ebony Eyes were total crap, Mm -hmm. but that didn't matter because the music was... uh, Sure carrying them yeah but with the Beatles you could you kind of could listen to the words and mm. they would do very interesting things to you mm. as, as they were as they were being voiced mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah and and so when do you when do you commit anything down to the page yourself or when do you start I guess reading authors or poets that mean something to you well I don't know I mean I was always a big reader you know mm. and my mother read Grimm's Fairy Tales and Hans Christian Andersen to me and we had a, a radiogram when I was a kid that mm. there was you know the big record you could drop on it and yeah there was Orson Welles reading Oscar Wilde's The Happy Prince which was you know swallow swallow little swallow mm. a lot of mm. powerful melancholy scary <laughs> stuff mm. so I, I knew that words were powerful in that sort of way mm. and then I, I read Endless Enid Blyton and endless sort of war comics because that that was the war still sort of pumping into us, I guess. Mm. You know, and I think there are plenty of males in my generation who learnt little bits of German that way, like mm. Donner und Blitzen and Schnell English, Schnell, mm. you know, mm. Achtung, all that ridiculous stuff. Uh, I read Biggles, Just William, Billy Bunter. Mm all the Tarzan novels. And indeed when I was in, what would it be, age 10 and 11, last couple of years of primary school anyway, instead of writing the weekly essay, I was allowed to write my <coughs> my Tarzan serial, you know, my imitation Tarzan serial, or my imitation Biggles serial, or whatever it was. So I'd always sort of mm. immerse myself in the sort of imaginative worlds that words made available and copied them desperately. So it didn't sort of seem strange to start writing a little bit later. Mm, mm. 
And that's, I mean, that's one of your, I think, significant pieces of advice that um, that I remember from reading probably Mutes and Earthquakes or one of those volumes um, that, you know, it's a good thing to, to basically flat out copy the voices of writers and people that you like and through that, you know, as an exercise and then through that, that's sort of how you start to come to understand your own voice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've always felt that mm. very strongly. Mm. I mean, the, the but I mean, there it is. There, <coughs> and, you know. Yeah, there it is. Oh, yeah, totally in your childhood. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I mean, the the analogy I use for that now is that when you learn to speak mm. native language at all, you do it by copying the adult voices yeah. around you. Yeah, hearing things and replicating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you replicate the noises your parents make. Mm. You know. Because yeah, you how, don't know what words mean, and no. you know, and if you if you quizzed on them yeah. anyway. Well, I, I, I gather that a mother usually talking to a baby will... A, a, a baby will make every possible noise the human physiological system can make mm. uh, at its mother, usually. Mm. And the mother will edit, you know, will confirm some noises mm-hmm. and discount other noises. And that's how the child eventually learns mm. which words matter and which... You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. not to use glottal stops if you're yes. English, yeah. but, but to use them if you're somewhere else, yeah, and so on. And that copying goes on, and that editing that the adult world does to the mm. child goes on, and eventually the child has a voice which is a bit like its parents, but is is its own as well. Mm. You know, very mm. different from the other kids at school. Mm. Uh, mm. And I, I think the voice that ends up on the page, as it were, mm. uh, for poets and novelists and so on, comes about in that sort of way. Well, for any, yeah, I mean, I think for uh, journalists or whatever as well, like, you know, long form, yeah, you know, essayists and long form journalism comes from, usually comes from studying you know, whether it's Norman Mailer's non-fiction or whoever, you know, there's always... Yeah, a Joan Didion. Or, yeah, Hunter yeah. S. Thompson. Yeah. There's always these classic... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joan Didion's a big one, mm. that people try to get near yeah, yeah. in some way and, and are overtly referencing yeah. slash ripping off yeah, yeah. Um, for, yeah. for, for some time, into La Court, <laughs> for yeah. some time. Yeah. Um, so you, you go to university and you do um, what most people... A lot of people do, and particularly just about everyone that ends up doing arts, you basically go there not really knowing. Mm. As you said, you didn't want to be a lawyer, but you didn't really know what you were going to study and going to do. No, I sort of knew I would do English because, mm. you know... I, I, that had been a... That had been a thing for me. And a a big know, influence, and a big... And I'd read some, some sort of uh, high culture fiction at that stage, mm-hmm. or I understood it was high culture because it was... You know, Penguin. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I'd read Catcher in the Rye and I'd read some Carson McCullers and mm-hmm. uh, I'd read some Iris Murdoch and so on. So I went to university and uh, did English. And that was that was quite a shock to the system because uh, at Otago, they, they, they would all study the Renaissance one year at every level of English and then all study the 18th century another year at every level of English and so on. So I arrived into as a as a seventeen year old I was at Otago and found that I was in the midst of Renaissance English, which I had not been prepared for mm. <laughs> at a New Zealand school, and uh, we were expected to do clause analysis 
of stanzas from Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which was pretty extraordinary. So that was all fairly strenuous. But, but, but I was saying I did English because, you know, I felt predisposed to that. But then I took on other things that I uh, didn't know about. So I, I, did, I did two years of Russian at Otago. I did a couple of years of classical Why? Greek. Well, <laughs> Again, as it, as, as it stemmed <coughs> from the sort of influence of the literature? No, I think in the case of Russian and Greek, it seemed really weird. It seemed really different. Right. Uh, New world. Yeah. I, I, you know, I did first year French and was bored out of my brain and forgot more French than I'd learned at high school. Mm. But Russian was a kind of fresh start and classical Greek was a fresh start. And I think also the, uh, the orthography, is that the word I want? You know, the, the alphabets mm. are different. You know, there was, there was some kind of, because of reading too many Biggles books and you know, having been in wolf cubs and so on, mm. I loved the idea of secret codes and, mm. you know, mm. mysterious languages. So there was, you know, I still love the fact that I can, I can look at a Greek street sign and immediately know how to pronounce <laughs> the name of the street. <laughs> yeah. Or, or yeah. you know, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or, or see some Russian yeah. writing and think, oh, yes, I can, I can say that aloud. Wow. Which is not, not a great achievement for... It's a clever skill. Know, yeah, though. yeah. Yeah. But it's a very kind of yeah. 12-year-old boy skill. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got in this world, I think. Mm. You know what I think about it? I started writing down uh, what musicians played on records when I was 10, 11, 12, and, and remembering them and how long songs were right. and who produced the record and all of this. And that's about all I've got. Yeah. to hang on to, you know, <laughs> my, 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 my development in that sense in terms of focusing on something stopped. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's been my high achievement. Yeah. So yeah. I understand that. Keeps you off the street. Yeah. <laughs> Barely, yeah. yeah. So, um, so what, you know, so you're in the South Island for all of this. Yeah. When do you, what, what's the, ne- I guess what's the next significant thing that happens and also when do you, when, when do you move again and when do you leave the South Island? Um, leave the South Island in 1970 and head to London. See, another one of the things that you did, or I did at Otago, and this is part of English, uh, was that I studied Old Norse. Uh, and that was a very standard thing once upon a time. If you, if you did English, you would be obliged at some point, not only to cover the canon, as it were, mm. but the canon would include Chaucer, and before that, Beowulf. Mm. And so you'd be expected at the very least to do some Middle English, some Medieval English literature, but probably also some Anglo-Saxon, some Old English literature. Uh, And if they could persuade you, you could also do Old Norse, Mm. Old Icelandic Mm. language and literature. And uh, I did that. I found it very interesting. So I could, you know, I read the whole of Beowulf, not in translation, but in... Mm. In the original, uh, I studied Old Norse and found, I think, that probably the mythological system that Norse runs mm. is very close to the Grimm, mm. you know, the Grimm Brothers' folk tales and, you know, Orson yeah. Welles doing yeah. The Happy Prince and so on. Yeah. Uh, but I was also, you know, obviously I was finding my own way with poetry. Yeah, because uh, when you, 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 you publish in the late 60s, right, you sort of first 
first published or first because there's a there's a book that starts in sort of sixty seven. Like yeah, it, it, I, I, it says it has poems from that sheet music book. Oh yeah, tells me and it's subtitled. It's a collection from nineteen sixty seven to nineteen eighty two. I think so. Right. I think your first book's nineteen seventy. Yeah, but yeah, you're obviously whether they were, whether these were actually previously yeah. published poems or not. I don't know, yeah. but they certainly. So well, if, yeah. Well, yeah. If I, th- I think back to being a student at Otago. Mm. This is way before anyone ever thought or would be willing to think of mm. uh, creative writing programs. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> there was quite a, a big self-created and self-sustaining literary world. Mm. The <coughs> New Zealand universities actually used to have a thing called the uh, New Zealand Universities Arts Festival and once a year all the university, the drama groups from each university would convene rather like the sports. Yeah, I was going to say like the Easter tournament. Yeah, <coughs> exactly the, like that. Yeah. In fact it went along with right. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. the annual sports tournament. Yeah. So there'd be competitive uh, one-act play things, there'd be an annual thing called the university's literary yearbook which uh, was published by the university students association and first time i read albert went for example was mm. in one of those universities literary yearbooks mm. each university had its own student annual publication mm. i think the otago university review it's just called mm. is still going uh, you know and there are famous magazines that came out of universities and earlier decades like Phoenix and mm, mm. so on. Uh, so the, there was this kind of very busy uh, literary world that you were part of. Uh, a friend of mine used to run something called, I think, the Otago University Arts Students Association or something, and they put on events. I remember mm. a weekend event where... Uh, James K. Baxter and Carl Stead sort of addressed interested students, you know, and gave talks. And I remember Baxter reciting, you know, several poems by Yeats, totally yeah. by heart, and just yeah. being amazed wow. by that, yeah. that ability, you know. Mm. Uh, so, so it wasn't as if it was a kind of empty mm. uh, world, mm. but, but mm. You, that world of, of creative work in, in the arts, especially in literature, happened despite the Department of English mm-hmm. rather than yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes I've thought that the way in which New Zealand universities have developed degrees in theatre studies and degrees in creative writing mm. and all the rest of it is partly because that has vanished from the student body itself. Mm. Mm. Probably when internal assessment came in mm. and... Uh, nobody could afford to take the time off to mm. develop kind of independent activity. Uh, but anyway, so there was lots of stuff like that going on. Mm. So mm. I was I was writing heaps. Mm. And, mm. and also there was, I mean, student newspapers are still pretty strong, but uh, I was sort of involved writing for Critic. And uh, there used to be a thing which happened during graduation in May where... Uh, Capping happened and there was a capping procession. Mm. Students had floats that drove through town and mm. and there was also a capping book which was full of, you know, 
supposedly satire and dirty jokes, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I co-edited that one year, so so I was kind of busy, but not yeah. not not inside the degree, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the but you so your first your first volume comes out in 1970, and tell me about Ralph Hotry. Oh yeah, well that. <coughs> That's really a thing I did with him. Mm. I mean, that, that, that was also the great advantage of Otago for uh, someone like me, anyway, is uh, there was the Robert Burns Fellowship, yeah. funded anonymously by Charles Brash, mm. and there was the Hodgkins Fellowship as well. And I think the Mozart started while I was there too. So all these astonishing people appeared, mm. and they weren't, they were sort of inside the university, sort of funded and uh, Mm. Shown some hospitality. Yeah, visible. But they were, they were kind of separate from the right. institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. uh, so, yeah, Ralph was one of those. Uh, Horne Tufare was there. Mm. Uh, he came a couple of times, actually. I think he came down once during the centennial, whenever that was. And I've got very strong memories of, of Horne at a sort of centennial debate. And, and the proposition was something like that New Zealand is a nation of sheep. And he must have been on the affirmative, mm. you know, some sort of mm. celebrity debate. Mm. Keith Sinclair was one of the debaters, and a professor of English, I think, was one of them, and, you know, famous outsiders like Horne. And uh, Horne had no idea how to run the debate, but, but he, he knew how to work the audience. Mm. And uh, mm. he led the audience in singing... Uh, we're poor little lambs that have lost our way, ba ba ba. I don't know if you've ever heard that, mm, but it's, mm, you know. Mm. Anyway, so the whole audience sang this, and Horne's side won the debate, and <laughs> and it was played on the Radio New Zealand News the next day. I wow. think. So yeah. So these guys were sort of yeah doing Visible interesting and, things and, 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 and being yeah. mischievous. And, yeah. <coughs> and I remember interviewing Horne for Critics mm. Paper and so on. Mm. So, so that was good, and Ralph was part of all that, and we we sort of knew Are each you, other socially through. Yeah, I was going to say you, you guys were you guys were basically collaborators. You know, it was wasn't just one thing. Mm. It was quite a relationship, and and my understanding of it was it was born out of I guess friendship. Yeah, and yeah. and a like minded interest in creating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That first book that you mentioned was really just. Uh, a bad pun, the word malady, which looked like the word, or sounded like the word malody, mm. which also seemed like the word my lady. So mm. I, I made, you know, typewriters were a great thing once upon a time, and you could do mm. these designs on the page, mm. smash them into the page with the keyboard. So I did sort of weird things with columns of malady stacked on top of each other and, mm. and put this little booklet together made out of, you know, effectively A4 sheets with typewriter patterns on them mm. and gave one to Ralph and uh, he did some drawings to go with it <coughs> but entirely of his own accord mm. you know it was mm. and, and then uh, he organised for a little book to be made out of that which is worth insane sums of money now mm. I believe mm. uh, but by that time yeah I, I'm pretty sure I, Katie's got one oh yeah actually yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Or oh, she should try selling it. But, you know, yeah. You find yourself short of a bob or two. <laughs> well, we do most weeks. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But 
Yeah, by the time that came out, I was in London. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's going on over there? What's what's? Well, I I I I'd originally we went there to see what you could see. Nice to, no, I, I I managed to get a postgraduate scholarship mm. of some sort, and what I'd hoped to do originally was to to go to the states uh, to LA and sign on for a PhD over there studying the the American writers who'd hung out in Hollywood and mm-hmm. had written for uh, for the screen, like Malcolm Lowry and mm-hmm. Faulkner and a mm. bunch of people like that. But there was no way there was no way the professor of English <laughs> at Otago was going to support such a frivolous right. <laughs> yeah. activity. Yeah. So I, I, I went to the other extreme and decided yeah. I would study Old Norse literature mm. in London, which mm. is what I did. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. And that was good. That gave me a reason to be in London. And I, yeah, so what else happens there for you? Like well, what's... there were kind of... Um, I got married, which mm. was pretty exciting, mm. uh, to, to, to Marion, who travelled with me to London, and we got married there, mm. partly to avoid all the drugs that are, <laughs> you know, a pub wedding. You know, yeah. yeah. So we could have our own wedding rather than yeah, have yeah, it belong yeah. to someone else. Yeah. Uh, so all of that was pretty amazing anyway. But uh, also, you know, poetry was pretty big in the UK. Uh, mm. in, in a different sort of way. Mm. So there were these people who were famous and you could go and hear them read. Like? Uh, Robert Graves. Yeah. Uh, Robert Lowell. Denise Levitoff, Tom Gunn, mm. uh, all these people that you... Mm. Pablo Neruda. Mm. I remember going, wow. to, going to the Pablo Neruda reading, either in the Royal Festival Hall or the Queen Elizabeth Hall, down on the South Bank anyway, mm. and mm. Uh, all of these Chilean expats were there, of course, and they all just... Uh, on came Neruda with this amazing sort of olive oil voice. Mm. Uh, but they basically just put their seats down and stood on the seats and sort of applauded with their hands over their heads. Yeah. You know. Yeah, wow. So it wasn't like your standard issue poetry reading. No, I was going to say, well, just, and you trot those names off in that, and, and at that era, and that's kind of, well, the equivalent of when you trotted out those names in the South Island in the 60s, like the Beatles and Roy Orbison, you know, right. it's the literary version of that isn't it yeah yeah it's, yeah, it's rock stars of the yeah. poetry world yeah, yeah yeah for the time and place yeah amazing yeah no i remember uh at the graves reading that i went to uh i mean graves was pretty ancient by then mm. you know uh and someone said there were, there were some questions at the end and someone said to him mr graves how many women have you left <laughs> and graves said I mean, he could have said quite a few, probably, yeah. as an answer. Yeah. But he, he sort of stood and wagged his finger at the person <laughs> and said, I do not recognise that question. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think would probably make a good answer at Writers and Readers Week, yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, just, yeah, just yeah. Say, just a form answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Ama- a lot of that was going on. Amazing but, experiences, though. I mean, when you mentioned uh, Tufari, I, I must have seen one of his last, fairly last public readings, I feel. Mm. You know, I saw, saw him a couple of times, but yeah. but I helped organise a reading that he did up here, and I, I can't quite remember the dates, but mm. it must have been very close, you know, towards to 
to, to when he would have still been travelling, you know, yeah, it was certainly yeah. in the last few years of his life. Yeah. And it was it was incredible to be in the room with someone like that, you know, oh, yeah. to just yeah. see how much mana he summoned just by sitting on a seat. Yes. And yes. hunched down, you know, yeah. sort of hulking over the papers and, yeah, yeah. you know. Yes, he used it, to have a good routine about losing his reading glasses, mm, too, you know, and mm, hunting for them yeah. in every possible pocket. Mm. He had and borrowing someone else's, and, you know, was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's quite the quite the comedian. Mm. Yeah. So, how long are you there for in the UK? London. And yeah, till um, about April nineteen seventy three. So, yeah, about three years. So at least one more book comes out. Yeah, there's book. another one with Ralph. Yeah, it's called, it's called yeah. The Elaboration. Yes. One. And uh, it's a proper book with poems. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and he does some drawings that kind of um, speak with them or punctuate them or whatever, you know, that like yeah. inter, almost like interludes That's and, right. and yeah. illustrations. Yeah, and a portrait of, of the poet. Mm. <coughs> yeah, the book was published by... I've just been reading Charles Brash's journals, actually. Uh but the book was published by Charles Brash and Janet Paul, mm. who set up a little publishing company called Square and Circle. Mm. And they were going to publish books that did uh, mix images and words. Mm. And so mine was the first poetry one. And they did a, a fiction one with O.E. Middleton. And they were going to do a Morris G. one, which somehow didn't happen. And then Charles Brash died, and then it was all over. Mm. Uh, and so the G didn't come out for like twenty years after that, I think. Right, yeah. Yeah, or maybe maybe a bit less. Yeah. But with with someone else. But yeah, so that that was that was good. Uh yeah, I've I've always enjoyed the portrait which uh, mm. gives me, you know, a a, a deranged <laughs> Would you would something you, and a chin tattoo. Would you want to read something from the those early kind of times? Do you have anything you know or we could find that you'd read from Oh yeah. From well, from around that time? It doesn't necessarily need to be from the elaboration, but I'm thinking from the just just for people listening to have uh, is there something that you feel is an interesting representation of Yeah. what well, you were trying to say? Why don't I read the the first poem from from the elaboration, yeah, perfect. I think, yeah. which is also still the first poem in the selected poems. Yeah. Uh, and it's got the unexciting title of Love Poem. Uh, love Poem. There is no question of choice, but it takes a long time. Love's vacancies the eye and cavity track back to embraces where the spine bends and quietens like smoke in the earth. Your tongue touching on song darkens all songs. Your touch is almost a signature. So yeah, that would mm. be a sort of standard issue. <laughs> standard issue. For me back then. <laughs> where does your... Um... <coughs> Where does your... I want to ask you a few things about yeah. how you read when you, when you give readings. Mm. Where, where does your voice come from? 
where did you, you know in, in yeah. that you talk about copying someone's voice and yeah. writing and then discovering your own is it yeah. was it the same for you and would you give that advice to people reading poems mm. did you are there are there people you can pinpoint and say I'm tr- I was trying to do a little bit around how that you know you mentioned all these great poets you saw yeah, in yeah. London for example <coughs> what influence did you take from people in developing a, a, a voice to read well the voice in that poem that sits behind it is probably the voice of the American poet Robert Creeley uh, and he's a big deal for you yeah, he's yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah. a lasting guiding yeah. figure well I sort of went or, off him a bit right you know, I mean, no but I mean but for, for a long time he's yeah, a, yeah. yeah all I wanted to do was, was kind of be Robert Creeley and sound mm-hmm. like Robert Creeley mm-hmm. and so on and so forth yeah. and uh, I, I didn't come across him reading his poems aloud for some time but uh, I remember buying a, a book called For Love, and that's a collection of his early poems in the university bookshop in Dunedin mm. when I was an undergraduate and just being blown away by the fact that you could break a line at mm. the sort of point he was breaking it. It was kind of like William Carlos Williams but with much more nuance and mm. less kind of, uh, I don't know, deliberate control or something. Mm. Anyway, I loved Creeley and I could I could see how he might be saying his poems aloud. And then I, I actually heard him in London when I was uh, there in the early 70s mm. and was just astonished at the way he, he hesitated and paused and sort of made a virtue out of being tentative and being uncertain mm-hmm. rather than because, I mean, the poet who was around when I was at high school and as a young undergraduate, in a big way, was Dylan Thomas. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was green and gold yes. and under the apple boughs, <laughs> you know, on and on like that. Yeah. You know, just booming, mm. high rhetorical, non-stop mm. noise. Mm. And really exciting, fantastic Sonorous. stuff. But didn't fit with me temperamentally. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to stand in front of a room and, and boom at everybody mm. in that way. And mm. here comes Creeley with this kind of tentative, cautious, uh, sidestepping poetry, little lines sort of stuttering down the middle of a white page. Mm. That suited me very well. And and I also remember hearing Tom Gunn, I think I mentioned him before, Mm. read in Mm. London, and I liked the way he read and paused, not always at the end of a line either. Mm. So I think I sort of developed, I think that's probably where the noises I make sort of on mm. on the page to some extent, but also when I say a poem aloud come mm. from. Mm. But then there's also this kind of weird thing. Uh, I don't know, if you, if you go back and find the old Edison Cylinder recordings of Tennyson, the idea of the poet as the chanting bard mm. is very strong. And, you know, the recordings of Tennyson doing... Uh, Church of the Light Brigade, and it goes half a league, half a league, half a league, onward into the valley of death, rode the 600. And uh, then you go to Yates, Lake Isle of English mm. Free, you mm. know, all this stuff sitting on YouTube now, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. And, and then, of course, Dylan Thomas. And mm. uh, So there's something... I, I don't think I started doing that sort of subdued chanting sort of stuff <laughs> because I've heard any of those people particularly uh, I think there is some deep 
deep thing in poetry, mm. some musical connection uh, that that operates and that yeah. I sort of gravitate towards, I guess. Well, speaking of a musical analogy, Sam Hunt refers to them as cover poems when he performs someone else's work. And I, when you mentioned Baxter being able to recall Yeats, I, I wonder if that's something in some way he passed on to, to Sam. Um, mm. That particular reference of yeah, yeah. Yeats, uh, obviously Sam's story is that his mum read him so much stuff and yeah. and so on, and he memorised it. But do you ever do cover poems, or do you only read your own work? No, I don't do cover poems much now. But in a sense, I I did it professionally for a living as a as a lecturer in English. I was constantly true. reading yeah, yeah, true. poems aloud. Yeah, so, you true. Know, yeah, 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 yeah. But so. not a not a. It's a Bill Manhigh reading. Then it's Bill Manhigh's words, rather than when it's a Sam Hunt reading you're going to maybe get a few verses of a Rolling Stones song and you're going to get Bob Dylan and you're definitely going to get Yeats and Baxter and yeah, yeah, yeah. all these things. You're going to get plenty of Sam Hunt, mm. but you are going to get these cover poems. He always yeah. hits them. So you yeah. never did anything no. really like that. No. I don't think many people do it. I just no. wondered. No. Yeah. No, I've very occasionally done something like that. Mm-mm. But... In tribute to someone yeah. or something like yeah. that, reading well, it's on behalf. A fairly usual thing, like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this, you know, this reading that's coming up at Unity from from the Big Weather anthology. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, each poet is going to read their poem and another poem from from the book. Yeah, so that, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. There's a kind of prescribed cover poem thing going on there. And you get things like Rob Tufari now as a professional son. Yes. As a stand-in for his father, yeah, and yeah. does a good job from what yeah. I've seen and heard when he does it. But yeah, yeah, he's a, yeah. he's he's a, a regular on the yeah. circuit now. <coughs> I don't yeah, know if there was any reluctance from him at any point, but now there doesn't seem to be. It's, no, especially he's, in those laureate readings. Yeah. That yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, so when do you when do you have any sort of um, relationship or connection with someone like Sam Hunt? Because it strikes because because he's sort of operating around the same time as you he might have started publishing performing a couple of years before you but then I feel like by the time you come back from the UK that's when Sam's certainly established yeah yeah and so, and you're starting to be very established mm. yeah. and you've always I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying anything here that other people haven't said but or thought but you've always struck me as as two people operating at quite opposite ends of Poetry, in a sense, um, <clears throat> but you know, there's a lot of there's there's actually some of your poems are, are, are quite almost similar. Like there's some there's some yeah, stuff yeah. going on. There's you know you're not you're not actually as separate as we might think. No, so I, I think you know, we probably have more in common like, than than you don't. Yeah, common, but you know, people wouldn't yeah. instantly jump at that. They would see you as a a university related poet yeah, and him right. as a a pub bard yeah, and yeah, so on. Yeah. Um, and I've heard, I mean, I've heard you speak fondly of his work, mm. but I just wonder when you meet him or have any anything much to do with him, oh, or even awareness well. of his work. Yeah, no, I've, I've, uh, I listened with interest the other day to him talking to Catherine Ryan on mm. national radio, and mm. uh, yeah, no, I, I I like him personally. I like his work. Uh, I think when we all first started out, as it were. Mm. Uh, he was easily the most gifted and intuitively 
technically sophisticated poet, you know, more than, say, me or Ian Weddy or Alan Brunton or Bob Orr, yeah. who would all have been put in the same... Yeah. You know, we were once the so-called young New Zealand poets. Yeah, yeah. All blokes. Really, yeah, You know, yeah. it was a very blokey time. Uh, but, yeah, there's a sort of geography thing. You know, you're talking about the tyranny of distance before. Mm. Most of those other poets that I mentioned there were living up in Auckland and uh, knew each other on mm -hmm. some kind... Just, just socially, perhaps, mm. or on, on some sort of literary circuit there, whereas mm. I was down in Dunedin with, with a few mates. So you, you're kind of aware of each other, reading each other in little magazines and the mm. university magazines. Like, I, I'm trying to think, the Wellington magazine that I would have read a lot would have been one called Argot, A-R-G-O-T, mm -hmm. and uh, really interesting people in that. Mm. Uh, and... Trying to think what the Auckland magazine would have been might have been called Kiwi actually. Mm, mm. Uh, so, but but yeah, so people weren't. I certainly wasn't hanging out with all those people. I, I was a kind of at a, a little Dunedin outpost, mm, uh, mm. sort of lost in a world of Russian and classical Greek and old Norse literature. Apart from that, um, why, why do you think it was so blokey? As part of that, I mean, obviously there's a there's a thing in that time of women raising children primarily way more than there is now but even outside of that do you think it was because the venues were pubs and, and stuff and it wasn't particularly welcoming wasn't or why know, was it because obviously there's 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 women that print poems f for years like yeah, yeah. just you know like that you'd be reading Emily Dickinson and names like that from yeah. way back but but in New Zealand why were there none out there I don't know. It's pretty odd, really, because, yeah. you know, if you were to look at <clears throat> one of the things I get criticised for or have been criticised for over the years in terms of the creative writing mm. programme at mm. Victoria yeah. is that it's all... Uh, women. Women. Yeah, women, yeah. So, but, but that's only because I choose the people who I think are most talented. Yeah, you know, yeah. It seems obvious to me that mm. the most talented writers in terms of proportionality, shall mm, we say, mm, mm, mm. in New Zealand... Uh, uh, female mm. these days mm. uh, so I, I don't know why it should have been so in my generation mm. I mean it does seem to be the case and this is sort of bad cartoon literary history it does seem to be the case that the Fairburn, Glover Kurnow generation mm. moved in and kicked women uh, off the public platform mm -hmm. on the grounds that they were sentimental and sweet and uh, appeared in Anthologies like Corfi Gold, yeah. and uh, that was all rather embarrassing and not not true to the place in which mm. we lived, and not sufficiently nationalistic in attitude and so on. And mm. maybe maybe my generation inherited uh, as yeah. were, the consequences of that. Yeah. You know, the yeah. walked onto the landscape that had been cleared of women in the first place. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah. But we were we were allowed to walk on, but yeah. perhaps women didn't feel so welcome. Something yeah, like that. yeah. 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 So, we, we, when you come back to New Zealand, mm. where and why? Where do you where do you settle? Uh, well, we 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 had a three week old baby when we jumped on the plane in London, and I was coming to a temporary junior lectureship at Victoria, which was to last a year, uh, and we were heading back to Dunedin basically. Uh, where, where there was family, where mm. everything was familiar. Right? Mm. Uh, 
be a bit of bit of useful childcare available, mm. you know, and so on. But then the job at Vic got extended, and then it got extended and made permanent and tenured and all that sort of stuff. So mm. we're still on the way back to Dunedin. So and that, just, <laughs> I was just, just going to say, so then, that, yeah. so then that, that was you some yeah, 40 yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you're balancing being a dad, having this full-time university job, and still turning up to readings and putting work out. Although, does the work does the work in terms of its public appearance slow down for a few years? I think it slows down. Yeah. 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 Though you know, I mean, one of the good things about Victoria was there was a guy called Don Mackenzie there who was a professor of English, uh, very interesting man in all sorts of ways. But he ran something called the Waitiata Press, mm-hmm. which was you know quite a serious little hand press mm. in those days, mm. and it occupied a couple of garages down on Waitiata Road. Mm hence the name, and uh, he used it as a, as, a, as a teaching press to teach people how, you know, Shakespeare's plays got set, mm. and how, you know, textual errors could be introduced and so on, you know, is it, oh, that there's too, too solid or too, too sullied flesh mm. could melt and so on, you know, all that sort of stuff. But one of the ways in which he managed it was to get students to set a new book of poems every year. So... He did a book of poems by Peter Bland and a sort of groundbreaking little book by Alistair Campbell, uh, where Alistair kind of shifted the way he was writing. Uh, And he asked me to do one, so that was quite good. So I I had to provide enough enough material for a book. So that that sort of thing was happening inside the English department. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't wasn't just sort of teaching. Yeah. And so on. And then, so that's and that extends across, I guess, the nineteen eighties largely. This, the the the, the occupation becomes the preoccupation, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you. It's yeah. As I say, my 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 understanding is uh, quite a quite a few books come out because there's the there's the milky bar one but then there's also like a couple of collections Mm. there's the sheet music Mm. which is sort of wraps up the 70s into the early 80s and uh, there'd been a couple of others before Mm. that but uh, and then there's a new volume my sunshine and then there's a book of short stories sometime around then yeah yeah so that does yeah I just that always sort of struck me as this really quite productive period or certainly like your name really is getting shoved out there as a as a, a buyable publishable name mm. in New Zealand yeah yeah I, <coughs> it's odd isn't it because I remember someone reviewing me uh, reviewing one of my books I think in the middle of late 80s in a I think it was in a Christchurch magazine called Untold, which was quite a good magazine. But they they referred they, they attached the adjective parsimonious to me. <laughs> uh, on the grounds that I didn't publish very much. Right. And I've you know, obviously I've 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 published a lot. Mm. Or I can look back mm. on a mm. lot. Mm. Uh, but I never felt that I was publishing a lot. I mm. always felt that I was, you know, Holding back and <laughs> holding back and not getting on with it and not doing mm. it and mm. and that other people were much more productive and prolific 
than I was, and I think probably they were, you know. I think probably people like Ian Weddy and Alan Brunton were, yeah. you know, uh, pouring out stuff by comparison with me, mm. you know. So, and so even, when you say even, that, I just, I just feel a bit puzzled. Yeah, know? sure. Yeah. No, well, and, and even like, because uh, Sam Hunt has a very very prolific sort of 1980s yeah, in terms right. of his publishing yeah. late 70s and right through to the mm. and then you know he only slows down in the night in the 90s you know yeah, he yeah. takes time you know, he still performs but he really takes yeah, yeah. time out from publishing but he mm. was pumping out and it strikes me that it's quite a hard thing to do to to flood the market with poetry volumes in new zealand you know quite a uh, uh, for many reasons, you know, quite yeah, a, yeah. quite an unprofitable <laughs> sort of thing to do, but but yeah, tricky to tricky to do, tricky to have people that would care enough to want to yeah. publish, let alone to read. Yeah, that's you know, right. you can't you can't even with a relationship with a publisher, you can't turn up every year and go, here's my new volume. No, they want some no, space, right. yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Sort of publishing every three years a new volume to me would seem pretty prolific. Yeah, yeah. you know. Even though that's even, you know, whereas a novelist would put out, and some novelists manage to put out a book every two or three years, and yeah. and people feel like, oh, that's more work because it's a bigger book, <laughs> would be, you know, would yeah. be the idea, but it's just yeah. not. So, can we? You you referenced the um, school of creative writing, the IIML, and and the the criticism of um, before we get any further into that, can you can you set up how? this came about, how your involvement in it came about, because it's, I mean, I know some of the yeah. parts of it, and I've probably asked you it before, but can you can you sort of document how this school is created? Yeah, well, I mean, back to Don McKenzie, really. I mean, he'd done a, a doctoral degree at Cambridge. Mm. You know, he was, he was a boy from Palmerston North, son of a railway worker, blah, 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 mm -mm. goes to Cambridge, and he's the kind of golden boy mm. uh, but one of the things you could do at Cambridge University if you were you know doing a degree in English was you could submit a manuscript of writing towards your degree and if the people marking your papers thought it was good it could count very much in your favour and if they didn't like it it couldn't count against you so Sylvia Plath for example when she did her BA, I suppose it was, at uh, Cambridge, submitted uh, a little folio of poems in that way. Mm. Uh, and so Don knew about that, and even though he was a bibliographer, specialising in, in sort of 17th century literature, I suppose, uh, he thought it would be quite good to have something of the sort at Victoria. And so he argued through the various processes that have to be argued through, uh, to, to a situation where if you were a third year majoring English student, if you were in your final year mm. of an English BA, mm. uh, you could submit a little manuscript of work, uh, fiction or poetry, uh, and get some points towards your BA for it. Uh, it was kind of weird in a way because in order to be a, a final year English student, given the way the prerequisite system worked then, mm. you would have had to recently have completed a course which involved studying the poetry of Pope and Dryden mm. and reading uh, work by Lauren Stern and Jonathan Swift, which none of which would necessarily yeah, yeah. you to be yeah. you know, a New Zealand poet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
but anyway, that that was how it was at first, and that ran like that for two years. I remember one student caused, you know, a great sort of heart attack stuff in the English department by submitting a a little book of thirty poems, and each poem was one line long. No one knew what the hell to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> that was very entertaining to watch happen. But anyway, at some point, the students doing this because it was just an opportunity. It wasn't. Mm. There weren't classes or anything. Mm. They 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 formally complained to the then chair of the department and said, you know, we don't even fucking well meet each other. <laughs> you know, we don't know who the other people are. Mm. You know, mm. it's not just that we're alone. We, the, mm. You know, there's no no connection. And so I, as the sort of departmental poet, you know, in mm. inverted commas, was detailed off to manage some meetings in which, you know, these people got mm. together. Mm. So in the old prefabs at the top of Kelton Parade with a uh, Darth Vader-like sort of science building, mm. new science building now sits, uh, these people sort of appeared in a room and I went, wandered into the room with them, mm. wondering if they would know that I was the lecturer rather than one of them, you know. <laughs> uh, and that was really exciting. Mm. It was really very different from a, a stage one tutorial uh, on T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, where most of the people didn't want to be in the room at all. Mm. All these people really wanted to be there and wanted to know about each other. And Then at some point, one of them said, I don't know who it was, I can't remember who, made the suggestion, I know it wasn't me. Someone said, I wonder what would happen if we all had to sort of write the same task, as mm. it were, you know, mm. if we were set a, a problem or, mm. or, or an idea. Mm. Sort of thing I remember getting at primary school where you all had to go and yeah, yeah, write, you yeah. know, my holiday. Or, <laughs> yeah, 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 what know, I did this weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. a day in the life of a penny. Yeah. Or, I yeah. remember using that once with creative writing class, a day in the life of a penny. Right. Or probably a, yeah. know, a dollar coin now. But, yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I thought, why not? You know, I didn't have any special ideas for managing these meetings and so mm. something was suggested. And next week, everybody appeared in the room and they were so different from each other and so excitingly mm. individual that uh, everyone was amazed. Every, I think, that in my memory, everyone was astonished. I certainly was. And so I started sort of, you know, throwing my weight around mm. and saying, OK, we're going to do this every week. And mm. That's when I sort of devised strange exercises like... Uh, you know, write a haiku using only the words you can find on the racing page of the Evening Post yeah, or yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. Whoa! So all this amazing stuff started happening, mm. not because people were given a sheet of white paper to pour their most inmost, you know, to pour their inmost feelings mm. onto, but because they were made to surprise themselves. Mm. Uh, yeah, and that, so the whole thing sort of grew out of that, really, mm. and eventually it I mean, people recognised pretty quickly that it was stupid for this to be available only to third-year English majors. And mm. so it was made available to, you know, anyone, mm. any undergraduates, mm. uh, you know, and indeed anyone, actually. There were lots of people who went, who'd done degrees years before who were yeah. applying for the course. And yeah. There was certainly a stage where, you know, 100, 150 people we're applying each year for... For what, 12, 10, 12, 12 positions? 12 places, yeah. 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 So, so at that point it was all roaring along yeah. 
quite well. That's a lot of um, a lot of reading and responsibility, rejecting those people. Oh yeah, and I mean, you're, you're inevitably rejecting really good people either yeah. because they just miss a place or because you're blinkered in various ways. And you anyone you can, it. anyone you can name or think of that that really resonated in New Zealand publishing that was never successful at getting in on your watch? No, but I bet... Yeah, I, I bet, I bet there yeah, 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 I yeah, there yeah. I just wonder if there was, a you know, like the equivalent of, a, of an Eleanor Catton, but she was rejected rather than picked. <laughs> you yeah, know, someone like yeah. that, yeah. yeah. I wonder well, if that's happened. One of the things that does interest me is that people have come into the course and done a certain thing and gone on and done something else altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone like Anthony, Mac Anthony McCartan would be an obvious yeah. example of that, where he was a, a kind of uh, rather strange postmodern poet, I guess, right. in, in, his, right. in, his, in the work he was uh, developing yeah. in, in, in the old original composition, mm. creative writing course. Mm. And then he sort of stepped sideways into theatre mm. writing and then sideways, yeah, and then into, you know, fiction writing in a substantial way and then yeah film then into the film that he's now working in. but even even um, <coughs> even Anna Smale I mean her book, first book was poetry mm. and I don't think there's anything really in it that links it in any way to the successful novel that she went on to write you know no. apart from that it's good writing yeah. you know that's the only thing that yeah. links it and so, there's probably a few of those examples, po yeah. people that go in poets and come out novelists yeah. or maybe vice versa. Yeah. Well, it's all a bit more professional than it was when I was running it, but certainly Anna was... Uh, she did the MA at the IIML mm. in possibly the last or second or third last year when... It was all one when group. The, 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 it was one group and people mm. were doing... You know, the, the, there were people yeah. writing memoir, there were people writing theatre work, there mm. were people writing poetry, there were people writing short stories, there were mm. people writing long-form fiction, and uh, they were all kind of, mm. I don't know, being very gracious and useful yeah. to each other yeah. and uh, enlarging each other somehow. I've talked to a few people for the podcast that have been through it, some, some with you, but mm. more since you've left, and so most of them, I think, that I've talked to, and actually maybe I haven't talked to anyone that, that, that was directly under you, I think most of them, yeah, have been in those individual streams mm. where it was all poets. Yeah, and I'm sure it's a much more efficient way of picking up craft information. Uh, yeah, I wonder, I, I guess like anything, there are pros and cons to, to yeah. both versions of it because I think yeah. there's something quite cool about putting a whole bunch of people in a room who's, who have an interest in writing and an ability and a passion but they have different disciplines within that and then trying to find some general tips and exercises that can be applied across yeah disciplines yeah i think well i think that's true i, I mean i've never really wanted to be someone who who taught in a narrow technical way mm. uh craft things I, I didn't want to be involved in managing a course which was like a short story writing manual or a poetry writing manual. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember once years ago going to <coughs> uh, the Catherine Mansfield Short Story Awards ceremony in Wellington mm. and the judge, who I won't name perhaps, uh, stood up and said that he'd, he'd not quite known how to judge these short stories but had decided to 
allocate certain points for certain skills. So he'd allocated 20 marks for character development, 10 marks for setting, <laughs> yeah. you know, 10 marks for dialogue, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, you think, that's, that's not how it works. No. And I've never thought that it ought to work like that mm. in a writing class either. Mm. I mean, I remember getting a very angry letter from someone once who'd done the short fiction course at the IIML. I don't think it was with me, but it was with someone mm. who maybe shared some assumptions with me about how you mm. did it. And uh, I think she was a retired diplomat or something. And she was just outraged. And, and her letter basically said, I'm a very intelligent, capable person, <laughs> and if I had been taught the ten crucial rules for writing a short story, I would have acquired them and written successfully. But this was not made available to me, and you know it was a kind of long, articulate, wow. yeah, 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 angry yeah. rant. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, well, you've missed the point. Yeah. And uh, wow. Yeah. So after that, I think we started sort of making it yeah. very clear and the promotional material, as it were, about yeah. the courses, that they, they were not a substitute for a, a writing manual. Mm. They, were, mm. they were much more involved in helping aspiring writers find out what they were good at doing and finding ways to help them get to what, mm. what they wanted to do. You, know. you mentioned the criticism earlier of the idea that, you know, it was basically full of women and I think there was some probably comments around diversity too that it was white women uh, I seem to recall because I, I, I followed some of that stuff which seems so long ago and I'm sure it still still crops up when were you first aware of any criticism around you know did it happen almost immediately were there were there people saying oh that's not real university study studying creative writing you can't teach creative writing did any of that stuff Oh, there's a lot, of, anyway. lot, of, lot of that romantic sort of stuff yeah. about how yeah. you're kind of born to it yeah. or not born to yeah, it, yeah. all of that. Yeah, there, there was plenty of that. Which, as you say, is is point-missing yeah. uh, in the extreme, yeah. really. And the, there was the usual kind of how could universities yeah. do anything but get in the way of the creative imagination. You know, mm, the, mm. The, yeah, you know. What were your own doubts about it? Were there any? Yeah, I wasn't sure that you could you could... It always seemed to me you could give people advice. I mean, I always like being able to say to someone, "You should go and read mm. Writer X," or you mm. know, maybe you, maybe you'd enjoy Frank O'Hara, or mm, you know, mm, mm. rather than you know James K. Baxter. Or mm, mm. You, were you know, I always thought that was perhaps a useful thing to do. The people, the people I know that had done the course with you, have said, uh, or people I've talked to have said um, that you are a really good intuitive hands-off person that listens reads and yeah makes recommendations says this mm. you should check that just what you said that you should yeah, check yeah. this out this this might be something that would appeal to you yeah. and that, that the advice sometimes comes in the in the extra homework assignment rather than don't do what you're currently doing or mm. something you know something blanket like that yeah yeah well I, I've never thought that it was the job of poems and stories and plays and films to, to preach at people. Mm -hmm. So I've never felt it was useful for teachers to preach either, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, anyway, but, I mean, even though you might know more mm. theory than the person you're mm. supposedly mm. teaching. Uh, Doesn't mean you can't learn from them, yeah. No, <laughs> and, you know, 
has to be helpful advice rather than you know pedantic mm. command. Mm. And there are certainly some people who get into the creative writing teaching world mm. who want who want to command and say no, you must write in this way. Um, mm. And I don't think that is helpful. I feel like I might have even asked you this way back in two thousand and one or so, but I'm wondering if in the in the first years that you do well the whole time that you do it. Uh, it has this sort of blessing curse situation that you're probably quite, you know, you learn from people that you teach, anyone does. Mm. So you're probably quite inspired to have a whole lot of things to write yourself, but no time to do it because you're yeah. busy rejecting people that are applying and, tra- you know, training and talking and nurturing people that are successful. And that's the, that's the dilemma that you have, I think, yeah. in that time. I, th- I think the, the the biggest sort of time dilemma like that that I grew aware of over the years, like from about 2001 through to over the next decade mm. or so, mm. was that I was spending so much time reading the work of student writers, mm-hmm. some of whom were, you know, the word student yeah, yeah. sort of, you know, as, as, as an insult to them really. But, but I was spending so much time reading their work mm. and often that would mean, you know, six really substantial novels that were being rewritten mm. every mm. two or three weeks. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There you are again. That uh, I could find little bits of time to squeak my own writing out. and But I wasn't reading enough of what was being published in the world mm. by the full mm. range of, mm. you know, writers from mm. any country that, that yeah. managed to be published in English. Yeah. So that that thing that I started off thinking I was good at, like saying, you should read Frank mm, O'Hara, or, mm, you know, mm. or you should read this particular novelist. Mm. Uh, I felt that, I, yeah. was, I, was, I was living in my own past when I was yes. offering that sort of advice. Your range of references had, yeah, a, had yeah. a finishing point. Yeah, so that in a strange way I was sidelining myself from the thing mm. that I thought I was useful for. Mm. So that was a problem. Mm. Uh, but I, I suppose going back to... Criticisms, the, the criticisms of the creative writing. The, the, the other obvious criticism that gets made is that you're turning out little clones. Yeah, yeah. Know, and I yeah. quite often see people, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's someone who constantly refers to the McManhar poem as if this yeah. is, you know, anything. The fuck is that about, you know? It's yeah. just someone who's got a, a tin ear. Yeah. This, well, this, this yeah. This notion that all of the people coming through the creative writing program at Victoria are being turned into yeah. versions of me when it, when it's quite the opposite, actually. I couldn't think of a single person that writes poems the way you do that's come out of that course. No, at I'm not, all. I'm not and claiming, claiming that I'm and wonderful and distinctive and Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even but, outside yeah. of that, like, exactly, yeah. I just can't think yeah. of, you know, they don't... Uh, maybe there are some people that have been through that course that... that are similar to other people that have been through that course. And but we're all alive at the same time. Exactly. History, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the same English language yeah. booming around us. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. But I, th- I sort of think surely the majority of those criticisms came from people who did a very quick survey only, <laughs> you know, a quick sampling. You can't arrive at that yeah. logic having worked your way through or for a start you can't work your way through everything that comes out of a course like that but if you did you wouldn't have that 
I think they just start with that view and mm. don't pay any attention to the thing. Look for a couple of quick examples yeah. that might almost yeah. support it. Yeah. 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 So that's that's annoying because it's because it's so stupid, actually. Mm. Mm. It's so lazy and stupid and mm. and that makes you more annoyed. It, it, it ought to mean that you just think, oh, for goodness sake, and ignore it. But it's kind of more annoying because it's so lazy and stupid. Are you pleased there was no sort of social media and stuff going on around that time? Otherwise, you might have found yourself tweeting in anger. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Does okay. it? I, I did start the, the Twitter account at, at the IIML, so... But no, I, I sort of managed to avoid that, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so when do you decide to, to, to step down, and, and why? Is it just time? Just time, just age, just... That's a, you know, I mean, mm. I, I could obviously have gone on if I wanted. I don't mm. think there's, a, there's actually a retirement age. Yeah. Certainly not at universities. Maybe, yeah. maybe not anywhere now. Yeah. yeah. But no, I, yeah. I mean, the, the odd thing is I thought, oh, you know, I've, I've found it hard to find time to, to do my own writing over mm. the last so many years. And boy, won't the floodgates just open. But in fact, they didn't. I've just gone on at the same pace. Yeah. Well, you had quite a, uh, it strikes me, you had quite a, a break from publishing. There's, there's a good sort of six or seven years, isn't there, between the last two actual poetry volumes. I yeah. feel like there's one, one came out last year, yeah. um, but I don't know if one came out, you know, I feel like it was 2010 or 11. Yeah, it'd be something like that. So that was quite yeah. a big. But yeah. you are a songwriter now. You're a you're a, you're <laughs> a pop star. Of, you're a jazz music. You're part of a you're part of a gang uh, yeah. with Norman Mann and, and and Hannah Griffin. And that's been a an interesting uh, tangent, I guess. And 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 I it speaks to this thing that you have where the cliche of most writers, and I th- I would think perhaps particularly poets, is that they work in isolation. And, and solitude mm. and collaboration seems to be a really big part of so much of what you've done yeah yeah it's it, it, you know it's a theme it's yeah. a it's a thing that you use well and often and tap into and so one of the big collaborations that you've had going on in the last decade roughly mm. is with norman yeah well that's that's just my good fortune really i mean i think norman is someone who was looking around for poetry to Adapt. To, yeah, he'd yeah. done some E.E. E. Cummings, I think. Yeah. <coughs> who's, who's more obviously musical than some other poets. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I may have this history wrong or just be seeing it from a single point of view, but I, th- I think he said to Fergus Barrowman one day, who they both knew each other through the jazz world, I mm. think, mm. Uh, are there any New Zealand poets that you think I might enjoy setting and Fergus probably mentioned a few but certainly one of them was me mm. and uh, Norman felt some sort of connect with some of the work that I'd done and set some of the poems and that was interesting and I got invited you know I got invited along to a concert at mm. St Andrews on the Terrace uh, where this stuff happened and I mean, I've 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 always said yes to people who want to set work because mm. why not? You know, mm, mm. As long as they're not making a thousand dollars and I'm getting nothing, that's yeah. fine with me. Uh, and I sort of 
I mean, basically, I think if a poem's any good, it doesn't need to be put to music, you know. I hate Lilburn settings of uh, Sings Harry, for mm. example. Mm. Why, you know? Mm. Uh, but of course, you want to because they're, composers want to because they're amazing poems. But, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's not a new thing to say, but, but, if, but if a poem's any good, it's got its, its musicality <laughs> inscribed into it already. And, mm. and I've always loved that definition of poetry that says a poem is a prolonged hesitation between sound and sense, i.e. between music and meaning. Mm. And it doesn't quite know whether it's a musical thing or a meaning thing, but both those things matter. Do you have that, did you ever have that written on the wall in front of your desk? No. Because I feel, I feel like that's a really great... I like to quote it. Yeah, no, no, no. So I feel yeah. like that's a, that's a pretty good summary of, of, of your achievements as a poet. Yeah, that's you know, right. Of, of your sort of, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that means that I, I, I'm happy for people to set poems, mm. but I don't expect to find them of, of much interest. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Because the poem's already got its music. Yeah, it's yeah. got its life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I went along to this concert that Norman and Hannah were doing and sort of quite liked what they were doing. <laughs> mm. I thought the poems were still, right? still more interesting if I yeah, yeah, know, yeah. kept them to myself. <laughs> but, uh, so then I must have been talking to Norman or wrote to him or something and said, how would you feel if I... Uh, Join the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always yeah. to join the band. Yeah, you know, yeah. Every, I'll dig out my 12-string. <laughs> every, yeah, every New Zealand man of my age yeah. is totally baffled by the fact that they didn't become a famous rock singer. Yeah, that's true. You know, <laughs> what went wrong, you know. Uh, but uh, I said, how would it be if I, if I tried writing some words for you guys to work with? Mm. Uh, and they said that would be interesting. And then I didn't quite know where to go and I said why don't I think of some poem some song titles mm. I'll just make some up and send them to you I'll send you this big list of song titles and you can tell me which ones you'd like me to write mm. and I said okay so this is a bit like being in a creative I was just going to say you're giving yourself a, you're yeah, giving yourself creative yeah, writing examples yeah, exercise yeah, examples to yeah, work but also making them expect something mm, of me so mm, I'm turning mm, them into the mm, demanding teacher I guess yes you know so I sent them song titles like Buddhist Rain, mm. Making Baby Float, mm. uh, Pacific Raft, mm. uh, and so on. And trying to think of ones that they didn't, that they wanted but I never wrote. One called The Third Piano. Anyway, but, but so they sent, mm. said, we'd, we'd, we'd like these ones. Mm. So I wrote the words to go with those ones. And mm. uh, that's kind of how it got going. And then there'd been other yeah. sort of much more focus projects like uh, the Antarctic sequence mm. and, and the mm. riddles sequence Tell Me My Name and mm. the, the old Norse Bridges Bifrost thing that yeah. we're currently working on yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you and when I say you join the band like I've seen a couple of different performances and so there's sometimes like a reading component you'll stand up mm. and, and either do an unaccompanied reading or you know a reading as part of it and then Hannah obviously does her thing yeah um, so you have that visibility within the project. Yeah. You, you're, you're part of it. Yeah. Um, it, I wonder if it was, are you sort of hinting that if there was any any block or frustration with not being able to get as many words out, that this project was a, an unclogging? 
that some of these projects with them was a was a way back into writing. Yeah, there's something, there's some truth in that. Yeah. It wouldn't yeah. be an absolute truth. No. But yeah, I think it freed me up. And uh, I mean, I think the thing about writing words for musicians to work with is that they can't be absolutely immaculate. They can't mm-hmm. be fully controlled. They have to mm. have mm. accidental, uh, not accidental things, but there has to be room for other people to move. Uh, there has to be less noise, less less ironic wordplay, less clever clog stuff, I think. Yeah. Unless you're Cole Porter or someone, you know. Uh, you have to be willing to repeat, you know, the, the whole refrain thing, I think, in song is pretty interesting. Mm, mm. Uh, and while you can use it in poetry, that has to be free yeah. to go and, and yeah. you can free yourself to write a ballad. And it, it frees you also from any expectation of publishing in the in the book sense. You yeah, are yeah. still putting things out in the world and contributing, mm. collaborating, but there isn't. I mean, I know with the riddles, they were, were actually presented in kind of a book form with an mm. accompanying CD mm. rather than just scribbled liner notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's not. It's 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 a, a freeing thing from the volume of poetry every two or three years as we were saying yeah yeah absolutely I'm not very good at rattling off like quotes and 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 thoughts as you are but one that has always stuck with me that seems applicable to this is Paul Kelly's explanation of songwriting is that in the marriage between music and lyrics he said in his book of lyrics in the intro he says if the he talks about the strange relationship between them and he says if the music is doing its job properly it charges the good lines and obscures the weak ones, and I always think that's quite a good explanation of yeah, yeah. of 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 a songwriting ideal yeah. that you can get away with what you were saying. You can get away with a slightly weaker yeah. line, but you're putting it in the hands of, you know, hopefully a sk- like like with Norman Mann, someone skilled that is going to go. I can make this work even yeah. even better than it currently yeah. S- sits. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing that's interested me along interested me along the way is that. Uh, you can write something that has a bit of a rhyme scheme or it sets up a kind of mm. skeleton rhyme scheme, but you don't have to fulfil it so absolutely as you might if you were just writing for the page. Mm. <coughs> you know, if you were trying to write a Shakespearean sonnet, mm. which I probably wouldn't, mm, you've mm. got to make the rhyme scheme work, mm. you know. But if you write a, a ballad that you know is going to be sung, then the rhyme scheme might be there in maybe the opening two verses, but be be missing later on, and the music will provide the rhyme scheme for you, because mm, mm. music does that rhyming thing all the time. It can't help itself. Because rhythm is a component yeah. of rhyme and vice yeah. versa, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, even something obvious like, um, not remembering the words properly, but, you know, that sort of pop song, The Girl from Eponema. Mm tall and tanned and long and lovely the girl from Ipanema goes walking and lovely and walking Mm, actually mm. rhyme Mm. when that is sung tall and tan and young and lovely the girl from Ipanema goes walking and when she passes each one she passes goes and 
and it's also the start of like almost like it's a, a more obscure but it's almost the start of like one of those list poems too isn't it when yeah, it starts yeah. you know it's got that element yeah. to it too actually yeah. just hearing yeah. you rattle it off yeah um do, have you got do you want to read something that comes from that you feel comfortable reading that's linked to any of these musical projects is there do you do you have anything that either you recite with them or that you think that you've printed out or that existed as a poem first why, why don't I just read uh, one of the songs? Yeah, would that yeah, be right? that'd be great. One, one yeah, yeah, that was that's an, that's sort of what I was asking, yeah. but that's a quicker uh, way of asking it. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I'll, I'll read mm. one called Pacific Raft, which I quite like. Uh, I mean, it's a sort of environmental number, really. Pacific Raft, and this is one of the ones that I I sent. Yeah, yeah I read, them the I, read title. A, I read a couple of the title poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So you sent them a list of titles and they came back and said, Yeah, they said, well, yeah, Go yeah. ahead and write lyrics for these yeah. titles in yeah. particular. Yeah. yeah. So maybe I'll do Pacific Raft and the one called Buddhist Rain. Mm. Yeah. Pacific Raft. We put the rivers underground and sent them to the sea. We gave the gondoliers their liberty. Water rising, water rising, Pacific Raft will rescue me. My mother's name was Coral. My father's name was Stone. I tried to learn the numbers and call them both at home. The ice is melting in the north. It's melting in my throat. Water rising, water rising. Everything afloat. Water rising, water rising. You have to look to see. Water rising, water rising, Pacific raft will rescue me. We put the rivers underground and sent them to the sea. We lived our lives on reclaimed land without a guarantee. Water rising, water rising, you have to look to see. Pacific raft, Pacific raft, Pacific raft will rescue me. And the other one's a bit watery as well. Uh, Buddhist rain. The captain switches on the seatbelt sign. I think that means we're flying. The turbulence feels quite insane. The cabin crew are crying and clouds are piling up again. I'm going to find some Buddhist rain. It's falling on Elizabeth. It's falling on Elaine. It's falling in the lover's heart and other dark terrain. I'm walking to the temple to find some Buddhist rain. Be near me when my light is low and all the wheels of being slow. Be near me when my light is low. I closed up my umbrella and stood there in the rain. I told her that I loved her. She told me much the same. And Buddhist rain is falling now in Africa and Spain. It's falling in the silences that reason can't explain. It fell on Alfred Tennyson. It fell on Kubla Khan. And Buddhist rain is falling now on Leonard Norman Cohen. Be near me when my light is low. And all the wheels of being slow be near me when my light is low. 
I'm pouring out my life to you. I'm pouring out champagne. I'm pouring out my misery in the Buddhist rain. I'm walking to the temple. I'm walking there again. I'm coming down by parachute in the Buddhist rain. And actually, the weird thing about that, reading it now, is that Leonard Norman Cohen was alive and kicking when I wrote that, mm. and now he's not. Mm. You know, so it shifts. And it, and it, and it, even before you got to naming him, the poem, the song lyric, feels like any number of Leonard Cohen oh, yeah, songs. Isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. Without yeah. without being yeah. any sort of rip off. Yeah. It uh, just, it uh, just, he, it echoes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, the, yeah, and as you say, the kind of meaning and feel of it yeah. has, has shifted somewhat. You said another watery poem, water's everywhere in your poems. Well, not quite everywhere, but in a lot. Yeah. You seem to write about lakes. And lots you, of lakes. Lots yeah. of lakes. And, yeah. and I guess, do you think, like, a lot of New Zealand writers write about water because we're surrounded by it, you know, we're on islands. Yeah, I think you haven't got much option, really, in New Zealand, <laughs> have you? you know? Yeah. But it's... Do you want to speak about um, Antarctica? Oh, Cause yeah. Because you, you've been somewhere that, more than once, that a lot of people don't ever get to or wouldn't, yeah. think, or wouldn't think to go to. No, well, I, I was pretty lucky, mm. pretty privileged, really. I mean, when, when back when I was a high school kid living in the Crown Hotel in Dunedin, uh, the American Operation Deep Freeze was an entirely ship-borne operation then, mm. and it operated out of Dunedin and Port Chalmers. Mm, mm. So every so often, the streets of Dunedin would be filled with American sailors. Uh, you know, I saw the first African-Americans in my life in Dunedin, you know, so there's grey Presbyterian Dunedin, and here are these wild, mm. lively, energetic, uh, zappy people mm. sort of coming through town. And of course, a lot of them uh, were drinking after hours at, at, at the Crown Hotel. So, <laughs> mm. so I met some of those guys in the bar, you know, mm. and uh, they had, you know, state of the art technology, uh, namely Polaroid cameras, mm. you know, so exciting. And yet, they were all getting on a ship and sailing down to the ice. And of course, you're kind of aware of, so I was very aware of Antarctica, but you're kind of aware of Antarctica anyway if you come from yeah. the New Zealand South, because you know that's where Scott and Shackleton mm, mm. you know, last made landfall before they hit the ice and so on. So when the opportunity to go to Antarctica came up through Antarctica and New Zealand, which was setting up this sort of art, artist visit program, yeah. I kind of, you know, jumped mm. at the chance mm. and, and, and went down. Um, but of course we didn't go in by boat, we got on aeroplanes at mm. got old, old, you know, ancient Hercules mm. uh, at Christchurch Airport and, and flew down. Yeah, pretty exciting. How long does it take to get there? Uh, I think eight hours. I'm yeah, right. Remember. I think it was an eight yeah. hour flight. Yeah. And there's a point where you reach... Uh, which is called the point of no return. Yeah. You know, where, where the plane has enough fuel to get to Antarctica or to get back to Christchurch, but it can't, it, it can't get closer to Antarctica and turn around. Mm. So that was pretty weird. Uh, yeah, and just knowing that, like yeah, it's yeah, obviously yeah. 
yeah. going to be fine, yeah. <laughs> you assume, but just <coughs> yeah. knowing that, yeah. Yes. And my memory is, I only went there once actually. Oh, right, okay. But my memory is that we took off from Christchurch Airport on a plane with wheels and we, we landed, uh, you know, at Willie's Field near Scott Base on skis. Mm. Uh, wondering if I've made this up now, but we came in on such a sort of low trajectory that I didn't even know we'd landed. Mm. Uh, and then they dropped the back door of the Hercules down and there was Erebus sort of sitting smoking in the background. Pretty extraordinary. Mm. Mm. Uh, but yes, I loved Antarctica. Yeah, yeah I, th I guess I must have thought you'd been there more than once because there's the, the book, The Wide White Page, and mm. of, of the, you know of, of various writings by people linked to it and so That's forth. That's right, so, yes, I've developed this sort yeah, of intellectual yeah. interest, sort of scholarly yeah. interest in yeah. writing about Antarctica. Well, you know, there's yeah. long been a, you know, we, we looked into, um, I really wanted to go there and a while ago and we looked into it and of course it's a horrendous cost to get there as a as a punter, yeah. just going there as a, I guess, a kind of uh, tourist to, to go, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a, uh, costs a lot and requires a lot. Yeah. But I know, some, I know to, some people have done that, you know. Yeah. Just, One way to get there, though, again, it costs a lot. Yeah. Is to go and do the graduate certificate in Antarctic Studies at Canterbury University. Right, and yeah, as, yeah. As, as yeah. part of that degree. That, that's your field trip. <laughs> you, you're required to go on a field yeah. trip to Antarctica. Wow. And uh, Alison Glenny, you know, the writer, yeah. did, did that a couple of years ago. And, yeah. You know, uh, she's got a book coming out. Yeah. Any day now from Otago right. University Press, based based to some extent on that mm. uh, trip. Mm. But yeah. Well, when I figure out what I want to do with my life, maybe I'll <laughs> maybe that'll be yeah. top of the list. Yeah. Um, you you've um, we've we've talked for a while, so I wonder if we should wrap it up. But I uh, soon. But I um, I guess there's a unless there's anything you want to bring up. There's a couple of other things I want to ask you. Is that you know you published some short stories. There was a book of them, and then there's a kind of been a collection of various. Mm. I guess prose writings because it has that essay in it and yeah. and so forth and then you you wrote some um, an almost instruction manual type example things linked to the creative writing course where you yeah, had yeah. some essays but you know you're known as a poet is have you got the have you got the cliche novel sitting in the bottom drawer that you've been tapping away at or is that something no. that is that something that's defeated you like you've tried it and given it up yeah, there was one I started years and years and years ago, uh, which I abandoned for various reasons, uh, mm. not all within my control. Uh, and it was going to be a kind of <coughs> parallel universe novel in which uh, the British royal family was going to be somehow connected to New Zealand's Deep South. Mm. And uh, Margaret would have taken over the throne in the UK with a band of kilted Scottish supporters <laughs> uh, and and Elizabeth would have been expelled and done a runner to New Zealand and, and been in hiding in the South Island. Oh look it's like probably the best time in the world ever to release something like that too. With the well, crown yeah. Yeah. Why do, yeah. yeah. Why don't you write it? You know. <laughs> I'm still trying to get yeah. to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm sorry that I never wrote that. Yeah. 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 Wow. I, mean, I mean there are a few few chapters of it floating yeah. around somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't you don't feel it's not just that story, but in general that's not a form you're I don't gonna have the return. You don't, I think, yeah. I think I'm, you know 
you know, I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter rather than Facebook, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think. Yeah, Twitter's for poets and Facebook's for novelists. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, and so what? I mean, you you released the book last year, which was a, the first actual book of poems from from you in a while. <coughs> oh yeah. And uh, and it really felt like a kind of wonderful return. Like it did feel like you'd been away. Mm. It did feel like you'd uh, you'd you'd taken significant time out from publishing poetry, even though there were these yeah, things yeah. with Norman and stuff that yeah. had cropped up, and and it, and it felt like a, a a really significant return to me to mm. me anyway. Reading it, mm. um, I I assume the book did well, meant something to to people, to yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it got some. Nice reviews, you know. Mm. I mean, I'm really pleased with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's stuff in there that's as good as anything I've mm. ever written. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it got some good reviews, and you've, you've, you've referenced reviews. To, I mean, you obviously, everyone that puts stuff out there reads reviews, even if they say they don't. Mm. But do you, what do you, what have they meant to you over the years, and what do you, you know, what, what, what weight do you put on them? Do you care? Do you, have you been upset by them, frustrated? Um, by reviews of your personal work, right. or do you just, or do you not really care? Uh, I think I get annoyed if I feel that there's uh, someone is reviewing from a very blinkered position, right? As if, as if all they want is the poetry of Geoffrey Hill, shall mm. we say? Mm-hmm. And and they somehow ended up being invited to review my poems. Right, and yeah. sort of outraged. Or there's an angle like they're yeah. reviewing the creative writer course through your yeah. or, or book or something like that. Out. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. There's someone who uh, did a kind of strangely ecstatic, gleeful, triumphant demolishing of, of my work, and I noticed that the same person on Twitter tweeted a link to their review and said, Finally, an honest and accurate review of a literary sacred cow. And you think, oh, God, <laughs> wow. thank you very much. You <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's pretty clear what what the agenda is. Yes, you know? yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I find that sort of thing a bit tiresome. Rem- but but you don't get into the because uh, some people in New Zealand letters I think do I, I know do you don't get into the actual answering back of this stuff. You don't. No, I can't see you don't do the that. back and forth yeah. of it like uh, no. like some of our writers have. No, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I haven't been interested to do that. No. But I, you know, I, 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 I don't have great respect for people who review like that. I remember when I first started reviewing. I think when Robin Dudding started Islands, he got me to review something for Islands, and I was either still in London or I just got back to New Zealand from London, and I think there were about three books. One one was a really good book by Peter Olds, and and there were a couple of others that I didn't like nearly as much, and uh, I wrote this sort of snooty, patronising, you know, Peter Olds is rather good, but what a disappointment these other two are. Mm. And I remember reading that, seeing it published and wondering about it, and then looking at it six months later and thinking. What a total fucking tosser I was. And, <laughs> yeah. and what was the point of me yeah, yeah. reviewing those yeah. people and trying to sound like some offhand Oxbridge don who, who'd, mm. who'd had to, you know, find something to say about these minor literary life forms. And, mm. 
you know, I was so disgusted with myself that I've, I've found that kind of reviewing. Mm. Just, I've never reviewed like that since. Right. Uh, and I've, you know, I think you might as well review stuff that you admire. And, yeah, yeah. You know, you're allowed to find some fault with it, obviously. Sure. But there's not much point in writing stuff. Just pulling things to bits that no, weren't really you know, for you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah. So I steer clear of that sort of thing. And yeah rather despise it and other um, people I'm, I'm learning to do that too mm. yeah yeah and, and you I mean you live with one of the country's best reviewers oh Marion yeah. yeah she's yeah, she don't you think good. oh yeah she's great yeah yeah, yeah she's an amazing yeah. writer and, and, and I think particularly the one you know an amazing reviewer mm. really but she likewise doesn't really want to review yes. books that she uh, is going to find fault with yeah you know. yeah though again she'll find fault of Mm. If she needs to, but it won't. It won't be the point of the review, you know. And and writing's kind of become the family trade, is uh, in terms of your children as well. So is there a mixture of sort of pride and guilt there? Oh, I think. I think, I think <laughs> or is it mostly just pride? I th- uh, pride, yeah. And I yeah. Think, I think basically the children have sort of stepped clear of me and, and, <laughs> and their mother, which is very nice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, they're not trying to emulate. No, well, they're, they're not. They're, they're not, not working in the same field. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so they're not trying to. No, there's no risk of being compared or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. But yeah. it is interesting that you're all writers. Basically. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's weird. So escape, right? do you all buy each other book vouchers for Christmas or? Uh, we do a bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we tend to buy books with exchange cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ever opened up four of the same book? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we did that once. We huh. we all, <clears throat> 25 years ago, we all bought each other Tony Bennett's Unplugged without knowing. <laughs> I think I, I bought it for my parents, my brother bought it for me. Oh, you know, they bought it for him. Yeah. I don't know how it worked, but we all, and we were all really happy too. Yeah, you know, it was nice yeah, to have a <laughs> yeah. to have a copy of it each, but it was quite yeah. strange. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you, should we should we um, wrap with uh, something from the new book? Because you said you you think oh, that okay. it's as <coughs> it's got some of your best stuff in it, or stuff that's as good as anything else. Do, is that a good place to yeah, to finish? Maybe I'll maybe I'll read. I mean, there's a lot of rather difficult stuff in here. You know. Mm. The, Which won't cheer people up to hear. I'm, 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 I might, I might read. Uh, I mean, another musical thing, which is <coughs> sort of interesting, is Sean Donnelly, SJD, got in touch yeah. with a few writers. Yeah. Oh, a couple of years ago. That's now, right. And said, um, yeah, what's happening with a, that? I don't know. Because I, I, I actually I interviewed, I interviewed him, and he was, he was sort of just in the middle of the early. Yeah. I guess the early part of that, yeah. Yeah, I think he's probably got too busy with other projects. Other projects I think yeah. he's been writing yeah. music, music for films. He and has, yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway... He, so you I were one he, of the people... And, yeah. yeah, I think he got in touch with Ashley Young, yeah. Damien Wilkins, James Brown, mm. me, and mm. uh, just said, have you got anything in a bottom drawer that you're not very happy with and you'd <laughs> be pleased for me to work with? And mm. uh, Anyway, so I... I, I wrote and ap- apart from your... Um, you're, what you were saying about you're happy for people to to, to set poems, um, were you you were aware of him and you yeah. like what he's about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, and it was good to again write something that I knew didn't have to live on. Yeah, the page. yeah, yeah. 
so, then it's ended up. So later on, I wanted to put it on the page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll read that, shall mm. I? Uh, and I've heard, heard his setting of it. You know, he's done a, a rough bounce of it, as they say. Mm. Uh, and I think it's really good. Uh, but whether it will ever materialise materialize yeah, yeah. and, you know, walk around the world, I've no idea. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, it's called Rescue. I was talking to the man who suffers, and I was talking to the man who sings. Boys still jumping off the railway bridge, like small boys in a dream. And there's always time for something special. And there's always time for time like now. And there's always time for making up our differences. We get along so well. I was talking to the man who dredged the river. And I was talking to the driver of the train. He tried to take his engine sideways like an engine driver in a dream. And there's always time for going to the party. And there's always someone going wow. And there's always time for going crazy. We get along so well. I was walking past the big white hospital. It isn't really white, it's cream. The lines of cars keep getting longer, each one of them delivering. And there's always time to say you're sorry. Always one last chance to break the spell. And there's always a loving friend who pulls you sideways. We get along so well. The end. Switches on the seatbelt sign. I think that means we're flying. The turbulence feels quite insane. The cabin crew are crying. Clouds are piling up again I'm going to find some Buddhist rain It's fun.